Ephesians chapter 6. Last week we began to unpack what is without question Paul's final discourse to the Ephesians. It goes from verse 10 of chapter 6 through to the end of the chapter. And we discover together that whether we like it or not, we are indeed at war. There is a full-on battle happening in our lives, whether we like it or not, and we are involved. The devil and his forces fight in clear opposition to God's plan and indeed his people. Therefore, we are at war. But as we saw last week, God has given us all that we need to be able to stand firm against his schemes. The belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit. He's given us all the different things that we're going to need to be equipped to stand firm against the devil's schemes. And so Paul's exhortation was simple. So let's get dressed for war. Put them on. Start to clothe yourselves in these things so that you can indeed stand firm against the devil's schemes. What we learn this week, though, from verse 18 through to the end, is really what are we to do then once we are fully dressed? Once we are fully dressed in this armor, what do we do? Do we just stand there? How does this work? Well, that's what we discover from verse 18 onwards. And so if you'd like a title for this message, I've called it Fully Dressed and On Our Knees. And let's read from verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Praying. At all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak so that you also may know how I am and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I've sent him to you for this purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Lord, as we come to your word, would you minister and speak to our souls afresh? Lord, would we realize the truth that our fight is done primarily on our knees? 
It's not primarily done by lots of doing things. It's primarily done by hitting our knees and crying out to you for grace. And so Lord, I do that now, believing that you're faithful and good and you're a faithful father who ministers to his children. Lord, these are your children. So would you speak to us? Would you inhabit our preaching and our listening that our lives may be changed for your glory? In Jesus' name, amen. It was over 10 years ago now that Emma and I rocked up to the Sovereign Grace Pastors College. We went in the August of the year 2000, so it's 11 years ago, and that we rocked up. And it was, without question, one of the most fundamental and amazing years of our entire lives. Not only the college and the teaching and the doctrine and the understanding and how to apply God's word and so on and so forth. Also for us, a big difference was living with a family and called Tom and Renee Dietrich. They housed us for the year. Emma and I had only just got married. We got married in April 2000, and then we went in August 2000. So all those that go into panic mode and think, how could I cope with doing anything in my first year of marriage? You'll be fine. You just get right on with it. And so we did. We went to Pastors College, and we absolutely loved it. We lived with a family and thoroughly enjoyed them. But I remember so many things that Tom and Renee taught us as a family. I remember us very quickly observing their marriage you're thinking, man, you, you understand something about marriage that I haven't really seen before. I hadn't seen how that operated um, in such a, a clear and passionate way. But also, within their parenting, they had two children at the time, a four-year-old and a two-year-old, and she was pregnant, and Emma and I were moving in. It was fun. So she was there trying to parent these kids, and Tom was parenting these kids. And over that year, we just saw, in my opinion, just some wonderful parenting. I've never seen with such clarity a father discipline his kids and train his kids. I mean, it was very clear. It was concise. It was loving. It, at times it appeared almost harsh. You think, my, they're picking them up on lots of different things. And yet at the same time, I've never seen a dad encourage and love on his kids as much. I, I've never seen a father more committed to communicate his, his affection for his kids spending time with his kids, loving his kids, playing with his kids, doing all the things that dads do. They just did a wonderful job of parenting. And so right at the end of our time with Tom and I, just before we came home, we asked them this question. We said, listen, we don't actually have kids yet, but we would love to have kids. Out of all the things that we've seen you do, all the applications, all the training, all the discipline, all the encouragement, all the ways and means that you are influencing them with the gospel and the word, what's one thing? What's one thing that we can take away that we can make sure that we remember and build into our lives as we have kids? What would be one thing? And they looked at us and without hesitation they said, okay, one thing, pray for your kids. I remember thinking, is that it? I mean, we've learned so many different things, so many applications, so many clever things to do, so many different things that we could use and utilize when one day, God willing, we have kids. But this is what they came out with. Above everything, pray for them. Lift them up to God in his grace and his mercy. Because it's not primarily about what you do, it's about what he does. So pray for them and be prayer warriors for your own children. You know, in so many ways, it's that same keenness that Paul finishes Ephesians with to this church. See, Paul knows without question that we need to apply God's word. He understands that. 
And so from chapter 4 all the way through, he has been urging us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. All the way through, that's the point. So as soon as we turn over into chapter 4, he's saying, okay, guys, listen up. You are Christians. You've been chosen before the foundation of the earth. He has then pulled you together into local church so that by God's grace, as you do life together, you may manifest the wisdom of God in the heavenly realms and so that you may be able to be Jesus on this earth. So live a life then worthy of the calling that you've received. He exhorts us then to be eager to maintain the unity, the unity that is God-given gift in a local church, to be eager to maintain it. But a funny old year in that regard, has it not? But that's where we started, chapter 4. Be quick. Be quick and eager to maintain the unity and the spirit of the bond of peace. He then takes time to explain that within that, we're called to use our gifts and abilities, our strengths for the glory of God in the context of the local church, so that the church may be built up in love, and so that the church may actually be a local expression of what God has called it to be. He explains to us then that you know what to do that, to keep the unity and to play your part well in the building of the local church. You're going to bring some sin issues involved in that. And so you're going to have to be a people that attend the divine changing room who know what it is to put off and renew your minds and put on, to know what it is to put away lying and put on truth, to put away gossip and put on encouragement. But to put away anger and put on self-control, to put, on, put off stealing and put on work and generosity. He also explains that this is going to need to play out into our relationships, into our marriages, into our parenting, into our workplaces. And so he right at the end of chapter 6 says to us, therefore guys, you need to understand that you have an evil one, Satan, who's going to seek to knock you off your feet and prevent this from coming about. One who's going to seek to divide you, one who's going to seek to lack you in encouragement, one who's going to sow discontent into you. And so all you're going to want to do all the time is break up and divide and turn against one another rather than keep the unity. And so you must, by the grace of God, put on the armor of God. And he gave us that last week. All the different things that we must clothe ourselves in so that we may stand against the devil's schemes. But right at the end then, he effectively says, but you know what, guys? Above all, pray. Be a praying church. Be a people that pray at all times with all prayer and supplication, with all perseverance for all the saints. See, Paul knows that prayer really is the ultimate secret weapon. And it is. Prayer is without question the ultimate secret weapon. It is a weapon that even the weakest of Christians can use at any time of the day, in any period of their life, and in any circumstances. It is readily available for every individual in this room who knows Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And when it is used by a believer, incredible things can and do happen. When people pray, you study every revival that the world has ever known. Where has it begun? usually with two old women praying somewhere up a hill. You know, this is what seems to happen. It is people coming to the Lord and saying, Lord, you can do these things. And so they cry out to God for mercy and grace that he would move, that he would move by his spirit and that the gospel would go forward. When prayer is grasped by believers, incredible things can and do happen. The reason for that is obvious. 
It's because when we pray, the resources of an infinite, powerful and sovereign God get accessed by your mouth. That's pretty incredible. It's pretty amazing to know that when you utter prayer, God is listening and he is ready to answer your prayer with power and grace and sovereignty. And so Paul, knowing that, closes this book with a call to prayer, a call to gather as a local church, a call as individuals to give our lives to prayer. You know, one of the things I love about it as I was studying it this week was just freshly realizing Paul's heart all the way through this letter. See, it's not a rebuke. There is no rebuke. If you want to know what rebuke is, read Corinthians or read Galatians. There's some rebuke in there. But Ephesians, is not, there's not a rebuke in this. It's a pastor coming alongside his people and saying, listen, I love you. So this is important. This is important that we live this way. And so right at the end, he's doing the same. He's not rebuking them, saying, guys, what are you doing? Not praying. What is this? He's saying, guys, above all, though, pray. The infinite power of a sovereign God is available to you through prayer. So church, Ephesians, Sovereign Grace Church, 2,000 years on, give yourselves then to prayer. And he repeats himself four times by giving four different facets then of this prayer he's calling us to. Four different exhortations, if you will, about the prayer that he is calling us to. Four fatherly encouragements for for this church. And it's four encouragements... I want us to look at and study this morning for exhortations that I think, if understood, can have a huge impact, a huge impact on Sovereign Grace Church, Sydney. They're as follows. Number one, he exhorts us to, number one, pray at all times. Number two, pray all kinds of prayers. Number three, pray with all perseverance. And then number four, pray for all the saints. That is Paul's clear line of thinking all the way through verse 18. So number one, pray at all times. He says this, praying at all times in the Spirit. Now, it's important that we realize that all prayer has to be done in the Spirit. What that basically means is dependent upon the Spirit. So before we go crazy, I think that means we have to sing in tongues very loud all the time because that's praying in the Spirit. That's very lovely. But that is nothing like what Paul's on about here. All he's talking about is praying dependent upon the Spirit, dependent upon the Holy Spirit for orientation, for wisdom, for understanding, prayer on the Holy Spirit for strength and energy and direction and grace. Have you ever been praying and then found yourself unusually tired? I mean, two minutes ago, you were wide awake, but now you started praying, and now I feel unusually tired. Have you ever felt that? Isn't it strange? That's why prayer has to be in the Spirit. We have to pray and say, Lord, before I even start, would you give me strength now? Would you give me grace now? Would you give me energy now? That's what prayer in the Spirit is. It is prayer dependent upon the Holy Spirit for grace and strength and energy dependent upon him for orientation and wisdom and understanding. So all prayer, as he says there, is to be in the Spirit. But the key to this verse is the phrase, at all times. And we know that because the key word is all. Paul emphasizes what he's trying to say through the word all four times. So four times in one verse he says the word all. 
There is the exegetical key. He's basically saying, listen, the word all is the thing I'm trying to drive at. So yes, all prayer needs to be in the Spirit. But the thing he wants to direct attention to here is that prayer needs to be at all times. At all times. You know, right up front then, what he is seeking to do is answer the question of when. When should I pray? When should you pray? When should we pray? Let me ask you, when do you pray? As you, as an individual, as you assess your prayer life, if we were to be able to put some type of prayerometer strapped to your waist at the start of the week, when would we discover throughout the week that you pray? How long would the recording last for? When would it be? Would you be a prayer coming out on a Sunday morning to our Sunday morning prayer meetings? Meetings that are designed by God's grace for as many people in the whole church to come out and cry out to God for grace in? Is that when you pray? Or do you pray at life group? Sometimes you go along to life group and you know when your leader says, oh, why don't we spend some time praying? Are you one of the first ones on the list thinking, oh, great, this is my opportunity to, to pray this week? Or do you prefer to pray by yourself? Just in your own time, crying out to God for different things at different times in your life. Maybe the only prayer you do is before meals. Thank you, Jesus, for this food. Amen. Lydia specializes in this at the moment. Her latest is, Lord, thank you for this food. Thank you that we're not dead. Amen. (laughs) Quite dramatic, but I appreciate the heart. When do you pray? Do you pray before meals? Is that how it works in in your life? Maybe your prayer life is concentrated to just trials and temptations. So to be honest, you don't pray very much until the doctor says, you know what, this could be cancer. And then you pray like you've never prayed before. Or different things happen. You don't really pray about money until you get to your bank account and you realize you've got minus $2,000. Then you're thinking, oh, Jesus, I need to pray. Help me, Lord. I'm going to gather every morning at 6 a.m. and pray for hours. And suddenly we become prayer warriors because we need something. When do you pray? See, whatever our present experience of prayer is, I believe what Paul is doing here, right up front in verse 18, is raising our gaze, every single one of us, to the truth that prayer is a lot more than what we're experiencing. Because prayer, as biblically defined, is to be at all times. It's to be ongoing. It's to be continuous. It's to be a lifestyle that we live before the Lord. James Montgomery Boyce, in his excellent uh, commentary on Ephesians, So it is not just that we are to pray, we are to pray always. That is, at all times of the day and sometimes even in the night. Prayer does not mean that we are to do nothing but pray, of course. We would get nothing else done. And Paul himself did not do this. He means that prayer is to be a natural and consistent part of our lives. It is not to be relegated just to special seasons or special days. We are to be a people of prayer. Did you get that? Prayer is not to be relegated just to special seasons or special days. Is that a temptation or what? You know what? Well, I don't don't pray in the week. I I come out once a year to the Sunday morning church prayer meeting. That's more than enough. Is, Is that where it gets relegated to? Or special moments in the day just before we have a meal? What Paul is saying is that that ain't it. It's not meant to be relegated to some special moments or special days. No, prayer, as Mr. Boyce says there, is to be a natural and consistent part of our lives. 
it's meant to just be the norm of the way we talk, the way we communicate, the way we live having a relationship with in Jesus Christ. Listen, I know for a fact that I'm not telling you anything new here. I don't have any original thoughts. I'm not that bright. But nonetheless, I also know that our hearts could so easily get dusted over in these things, eh? We know it. Praying at all times. I know that, yes. Pray ongoing. Yes, I know that. Pray continue. Thank you very much. I know that. Tell me something I don't know. No, I'm going to tell you something you know and I'm going to say, are you doing it? Are you applying it? See, our hearts can get dusted over. I don't remember a few weeks ago, Emma and I bought a, a television. I was very excited. I was very, very excited about the television. And usually excited about television because I've never had a flat screen television before. And for a man, this is like a breakthrough in life. This is just an achievement that I've never known. But one thing I've discovered about this TV is it does get dusty very quickly. So I like to give it a little dust myself because it's good to keep your treasure organized. So I, I like to give the, uh, the TV a little dust. What alarms me, though, is within a day, it's dusty again. So you have to go back to the television with your shirt and have another go just to keep it, just to keep it all in good precision. And then the next day comes around, it's dusty again. What is this? I, I think our hearts can be like that. We think we've got it. It's clean. I know this. Pray continuously. Tell me something I don't know. No, I, I think your heart may become dusted over in this. So I'm going to tell you again, and then it's your job to assess, am I praying at all times? Or am I not? Paul is exhorting us to pray at all times, to pray continually, ongoingly, to pray when you're happy, to pray when you're despondent, to pray when you're at work, to pray when you're at holiday, to pray when you're sick, to pray when you're healthy, to pray when you're joyful, to pray when you're sad. Pray at all times. He then assesses, well, you know, what am I meant to pray then? How does this kind of feature? Number two, pray all kinds of prayers. Verse 18 again, he says, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. Now, just so we're all clear, supplication just simply means request. And so if you're wondering, supplication with all prayer and vitamins, this is a bit strange. No, all prayer and requests. He's basically talking about what we're asking God for and what we're spending time with God actually communicating to him. And this makes sense, doesn't it? See, life is varied, is it not? Life is incredibly complex and incredibly varied. There will be times of happiness and despondency, of joy and sadness, of clear rejoicing and clear need. And so if we're going to pray then at all times, it would make sense that it's not a broken record, one size fits all. It's going to differ depending on what's going on in our lives. Because life is varied, it would make sense that our prayers then, because they're at all times, would also be varied. And that's exactly what Paul is saying here. Praying at all times with all prayer and supplication, with all kinds of prayers before the Lord. One of the helpful things to me on this over the years, which I'm sure you've heard of, but in case you haven't, is R.C. Sproul's Acrostic Acts. And I think that is a helpful way of remembering just some of the key features of the Bible and the key features of the Bible's prayers, acts. A is for adoration. Prayers of adoration where we come to God in reverence and praise and and give him the worth that he deserves, knowing that he is the one that spins the galaxies, that he's our saviour. We sing prayers of praise to him as we consider who he is and all he's done. C is for confession. 
Prayer is when we understand and see ourselves in light of God's word, that we're sinners, that we're in need of grace, and we come back to the Lord then and ask for his forgiveness with prayers of confession. Prayers of thanksgiving then. Prayers where we come back to him and we give thanks for all he is, like the one leper that bothered to come back, having all ten come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and the healer. One comes back with a prayer of praise and thanksgiving. Well, we're called to do that as well, thanking God. That changes your whole life. You see, I think this is often a prayer that is often missed out to our own peril. We spend so long usually asking God for requests. We don't spend time at all considering that my glass is nigh on overflowing permanently. We spend all the time thinking about the 1% that I haven't quite got yet, so I'm going to ask about that, rather than seeing my glass is overflowing nearly all the time, and so my prayer should predominantly be thanksgiving. I deserve nothing. So, Lord, thank you for all this. This is insane that I have all these blessings in my life. That is the word T for thanksgiving. And then S is supplication. Prayers of supplication or request. Jesus himself exhorts us to that, does he not? He says, pray to the Father to give you your daily bread. Well, the key is daily. It's not rocket science, eh? Sometimes you speak to people and say, I don't think prayer is that important every day. Well, Jesus said, give us this day our daily bread. It seems to be a daily exercise. So I don't think it's important either as long as you don't mind not eating every day as well. You know, but this is this context here. Is this is something that should be happening. James himself in his writing says, you know what, you don't have because you don't ask. You ever thought about that? Something that you're desperately seeking to work through and have come about? Have you prayed about it or are you just too busy working on it? Sometimes we don't have because we don't ask. And so all kinds of prayers, acts, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication, if we're going to wield this secret weapon in our lives, then I believe we need to acquaint ourselves and utilize these types of different resources that we have to us in terms of the weaponry of prayer. This third one, though, is the one that really caught my attention this week. This number three, pray with all perseverance. He says, to that end... Keep alert with all perseverance. This call to all perseverance, I think grabbed my attention this week because the more I thought about it, the more I realized that in Australia in 2011, as Christians in the Western world, I think this prayer of perseverance considerably has the the stack of cards stacked against us because of where we live. Because in reality, we do indeed have an evil one. See, culture, I think, when it comes to perseverance, is unhelpful. Because in the Western world, we are not taught to persevere in in anything. Our culture is a now culture. That's the way it operates. I remember when I was a kid, I remember my parents would buy something from a shop, you know, they'd buy a washing machine or a dryer or something, and then after a few years, the guarantee would run out and it would break. So what they would do is they'd put it in the boot of the car and they'd take it around the shops and they'd find somebody to repair it and then you'd bring it back home and plug it back in. Not anymore. You buy something, it's out of guarantee, it's bust, throw it away, let's get a new one because I need it now. It's a now culture. I remember as a child buying fish and chips. Now and again on your birthday or something like that, your parents would take you to the fish and chip shop 
absolutely legend. And sometimes, you know, if it's your birthday, you'd sit in, which would be a grand event in Spalding. If you've ever been to Spalding, which you haven't, it's a tiny little place. There ain't a lot happening in there. Eating in in the chip shop is the highlight of your life. And so we would eat in. Fish and chips and mushy peas, legend. And so we would sit down and you'd order your food, you'd be starving, and it would usually take about 40 minutes for them to cook it, bring it out, and then you'd serve your family and you'd all be there and you'd have a good time. 40 minutes. I don't remember that ever being a problem. Now you go to McDonald's and you order your food, and if it's not there in a minute, you stand in a line with the other people going, it's taking a long time. It's taking very long. I'm going to have to go somewhere else in a minute because you're in a rush. Because it's McDonald's. This is fast food. I need it fast. I'm starving. I need it now. I'm about to die. So you stand in the line and you start to mutter and check your watch and lean in a little bit and check. Is anybody cooking this? Are you killing the cow out there? People just start to speed people up. Because we're a now culture. We, want, we don't want to persevere. We don't want patience. We want it now. I remember also as a child getting my first computer. Very special. Spectrum 48K with RAM pack. Absolutely legend. Had a separate tape recorder with it, so I plugged it in. It was a little black thing with rubber keys that broke. They broke because I used to like Daily, Daily Thompson's Decathlon. And it was Z and X to run. And after you've done it for a year, it just shatters the whole thing. I found it. But I remember this keyboard. It was absolutely great. And you would, the way it would tend to work is if you wanted to play a game and play a computer game, you'd have to be patient. You'd have to wait for it to happen. So you'd press play on the, on the tape player and it would go into the computer and it would usually take about five to six minutes to load a game. And so you'd be there waiting. <laughs> and you just listen. You think, it's doing something. It's giving it code. And then at the end, you would hear the final thing. And you think, this is it. Error. 0.01. Let's try it again and turn it up a little bit. So you'd be there about 20 minutes just trying to get this thing to load to your computer. But you would persevere, man. You would do this because you are keen and excited about playing the game until, oh, until the Commodore 64 came out. When the Commodore 64 came out with floppy disk, I knew we were, we were cooking on gas now. The, 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 the disk would go in and you'd play your game until the, the Amstrad 128K, every child's dream, built-in tape player. No more leads. Amazing. You'd spend about four minutes trying to get these things loaded, but you're really excited. Things took time when I was a child. Now, I sit on my laptop at home, on my Apple, I get it out, turn it on. Thinking, my, it's taking about 12 seconds to load up these days. What is this? <laughs> turn on the broadband. It's not coming at a thousand miles an hour. That's it. Love, get Optus on the phone. We need to speak to them. It's not going a thousand miles. And you just think, what is this? This computer is rubbish. I probably need a new one. They, they rang me up this week and they said, would you like your broadband to be four times faster? I said, that sounds very good. Four times faster. I need it fast. I am a pastor. You know. I need it fast. I need it quick. I need information quick. We're not living in a culture that in any shape or form is developing perseverance in us. We don't live in a culture that wants us to be patient. We live in a culture that screams at us, you need everything now. Likewise, we have an enemy who sits on our shoulder and seeks to deceive us. 
He seeks to deceive us when it comes to prayer and this idea of persevering in prayer, that there's no point. He seeks to deceive us that prayer really doesn't do anything anyway. I mean, you are charismatic, but you are reformed, right? Which means that you believe God is sovereign, right? Sovereign over all things. Uh Uh-huh. So this is what he says. So what's the point in praying then? God's going to do what he's going to do. He's sovereign over all. You believe it. You sing about it. You rejoice in it. So what's the point in praying? That's the deceptive line that he seeks to give us. If God is sovereign, then what is the point in praying? The devil never comes to us and says, you know what? Here's the point in praying. God in his sovereign plan has caused prayer to be the means through which he brings that sovereign plan. So if you don't pray, you don't have. Because in his sovereignty, he is using prayer as a means to bring about his sovereign plan and purpose. We get excited about it then, but he doesn't tell us that. He just leaves that bit out and says, but if God's sovereign, what's the point? And after a while we think, you're probably right. If my son's going to get healed of his heart condition or if my son is going to get healed of his cleft palate, well, if God's sovereign, he's just going to do what he wants to do. So what's the point in praying about those things? He also seeks to deceive us that prayer just isn't one of our gifts. You ever felt that? You know what? I just don't think prayer is one of my gifts. I I think of myself more as a worshiper or an administrator. Prayer, yeah, I'm not sure God's given me that gift. Satan refuses to remind us of the five passages in Scripture which talk about spiritual gifts. There's 19 spiritual gifts. Guess what? Prayer isn't one of them. Do you know why that is? It's because prayer isn't a spiritual gift. It's like eating and breathing and drinking. It's something we all do. It's something that for us Christians we do. It's not a spiritual gift. So don't be deceived into thinking, well, prayer just isn't my gift. It's not anybody's gift. He hasn't given it as a gift. He's given it as part of life. Something we're all called to do. But Satan seeks to deceive us into helping us see that you know prayer isn't worth it anyway. God's sovereign. There's not a lot of point. And even if he isn't sovereign, well, you haven't got that gift anyway. Likewise, he seeks to deny us the truth and helps us to think that we just don't have time for prayer anyway. I think that's something we all succumb to at different times, is it not? I know I do probably more than the most. You get under pressure. Things are happening. You think, I've got to get it done. I've got to get it done. I'm behind on my message. I've got to get it done. And then we'll say, have you prayed? And you think, of course not. I don't have time. I've got to get on. You ever been tempted to think that? I've got to get on. I've got to do. I need something now. Well, why don't you stop and pray? I have not got time. So you haven't got time to approach the maker of heaven and earth, the one who can solve your problem in a moment, the one whose all sovereignty and all power and all grace is available to you right now. You haven't got time to access him. You you just want to do it yourself. Somehow it seems so right at the time, does it not? It's because we're deceived, because Satan seeks to deceive us. Look, we live in a culture and we have an enemy that without question stacks the cards against us somewhat, I believe, in terms of persevering in prayer. The culture that we live in is now, and the enemy seeks to want to deceive us. 
And so we don't naturally in Australia in 2011, I don't think, think, you know what? All I want to do today is attend the church prayer meeting. That's all I want to do. And I want to do it every week. And even if I don't see things answered straight away, I want to keep coming back and back and back because I want to persevere. That's not often our usual thinking. Our usual thinking is, oh, I'm busy. I'll leave that for somebody else. And I'm not sure if it's doing anything anyway. They're all lies. Listen, if you have given into those lies, I want to encourage you. Get ready for war and hit your knees. That is what Paul is saying here. Satan wants to do all he can to rob you of the power of prayer. Satan wants to do all you can to ensure that you do not have because you do not ask. He wants to do all he can to knock you off the point, to to baffle you with other things that you're allegedly meant to be giving time to. He wants to do all you can, all he can, to cut you off from the truth of the power and the glories of prayer. So what we must do is realize we are being duped. We are being duped by our culture and we are being lied to by the enemy and the best thing I can do then to stand against the devil's schemes, the best thing I can do to give myself to building a local church which would reflect Jesus Christ as Lord and Master of the universe is to dress for war and hit my knees. That's what Paul's saying here. Pray at all times, with all types of prayer, with all perseverance. Keep going. My friends, when we pray, God is listening. The one who died for you, the one who spins the galaxies, the one who breathed forth the stars and the sun and the moon is listening to you. The Bible says that our prayers are like sweet-smelling incense to the Lord. They all rise to him and he hears each one, and in his power and sovereignty and splendor, he is able to answer each one. And when he does answer each one, having heard our prayers, incredible, majestic, great things happen. So we've got to pray at all times with all perseverance. And in the close of verse 18, Paul then simply says, this is who we're to pray for. Number four, pray for all the saints. What's the object of our prayer? According to the book of Ephesians? The saints. All the saints. Believers. People who know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. See, in an, in an unspecific way, what Paul is referring to are the saints that are all around the world. Saints that are faceless to us on the whole. Face, faceless in that we don't even know so many Christians around the world, do we? There are millions of us around the world. And Paul is in an unspecific way saying, listen, pray for them. Pray for them. We're a part of Sovereign Grace Ministries. Just this week I had an email from, from Dave Harvey, who at the moment is president of Sovereign Grace. And he was just letting us know that a few of the guys had been out to the Dominican Republic, so you say it, this week. And they had been at a conference with over 5,000 people at it that Sovereign Grace were putting on. And they had just had an amazing time, many filled with leaders, a number of churches there that are pursuing Sovereign Grace to be adopted by Sovereign Grace so that we can use them as a base to actually plant more churches in that part of the world, many into poverty situations. On the way to that conference, they stopped in at Cuba because we have some Sovereign Grace churches in Cuba. And they were just praying with the guys because many of these guys are getting beaten up for the faith. 
We're to pray for them. That's just a small snapshot of so many things that are happening in our family of churches alone, let alone before we get onto other movements and other families and other denominations that are all around the world. Sovereign grace aren't the be-all and end-all. Jesus Christ is the be-all and end-all. And our brothers and sisters then need our prayers. So in many ways, we're to pray for all the saints, all those that know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, all those that are scattered around this world that we call earth and are seeking to live for Jesus Christ in their communities and their places, both in Sovereign Grace Ministries and outside of. But in a specific way, what Paul means here is this. The people that are in this room today, the people that God in his sovereignty has placed us with in a connected way and in a committed way. See, that's the way Ephesians works. It is not just universal church and therefore let's all do our thing. No, he's saying in chapter 4 verse 16, therefore this will grow as each part is connected and committed and playing it. I can't do that to somebody I've never met in outer Mongolia. No, it's going to be tricky to bear his burdens as well because you've never met him. You do it with the people around you that God's connected you with and committed you with by his grace and for his glory within the context of local church, the places where Paul has placed us. How do I know that? Because of what he goes on to say. Paul's own example from verse 19 onwards. You see, there's no doubt that Paul knew the Ephesian church in a very specific way. He planted this church. He rocked up. There was just him. And he starts telling a few people about Jesus. And they get saved. And they all start telling people about Jesus. And more people get saved. And then Paul got called on. He needed to start planting other churches in the different things that he was giving his life to in the mission of planting and building local churches. But he's also still caring for this church. So he's writing to them. He's encouraged them along the way. And so he communicates in verse 19 through 24 that he's going to send young Tychicus. Why is that? That's because he knows this church. He knows they're going to be concerned for him. He knows they love him. And he knows that they're going to be worried for him and concerned for him. And so he wants to send a report with Tychicus so that they can know how he is, so that they can know how he's feeling, how he's doing about different things. He also says, listen, guys, when you gather them, would you pray for me? That's pretty full on. You see, Paul is like a super apostle, is he not? I mean, this guy is amazing. This guy's been whipped. He's been shipwrecked. He's been beaten. He he is articulate in the way he talks. This guy is a genius. And yet he asks them to pray for him. And he's saying, listen, pray for boldness and pray for articulation. Why? Because I don't feel very bold. And because I don't think I'm even that good at talking. Help me. Please carry me in your hearts as a local church. Please pray for me. And then in verse 23 and 24, the benediction, in effect, he's praying for them. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Do you feel his nearness to this church? This isn't just a random letter to people he's never met. 
This is a faithful pastor writing to this church saying, listen, I know you love me and so I'm going to send you Tychicus and will you pray for me? And listen, I pray for you. I pray that God will give you all grace and I do that because I love you and because I know you. The Ephesian church carried Paul in their hearts and Paul carried the Ephesian church in his heart and now at the end then he gathers them together and he says, listen then, pray for one another. At all times, with all kinds of prayers, with all perseverance, pray for all the saints in the same way that you're praying for me. Pray for them, both people that you will never meet across the world that know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and people that you have met that God is building you together with in the context of the local church. And so the question then is this, who are the men and women in our lives that God has joined us with in a specific way that we're actually committed to praying for? And when I say committed, I mean we're doing it. Who are the men and women that God is drawing into our lives within the context of this local church and beyond that God is connecting us to and committing us to in a way that we are giving ourselves to pray for them? That's Paul's example. That's the Ephesian example. He desires it to be our example. Now, there's two old ladies that I want to tell you about in closing in Christchurch called Hetty and Iwin. Hetty and Iwin are, Hetty's over 90 now, Iwin is probably coming up to 90, and they're the dearest old ladies you're ever going to meet in your life. They're two sisters, they uh, never got married, so they lived together their entire life, and now they live in uh, Lanfrecfer, which is just outside Newport, South Wales, and they are the dearest, dearest pair of ladies you're ever going to meet. They can barely move very well, so on a Sunday they still drive themselves, can you believe? It is insane. They drive in the snow, you know, there's, there's chains on the tires that, that, that Hetty's put on herself, you know, it's very strange. But they come to church in this big blue car, and then they get in, and you see them coming out the car, and sometimes they used to stand on the door, and I didn't have to lead worship and, and do some of the things we did then, so there was more talk time with the team pastors. Sometimes I'd stand on the door, and they would come out the car, and they would start walking over. And you could go off and have a cup of tea by the time they come out. It just took them so long to get in. And then you'd get into the door and you'd say, ladies, you are looking speedy today. Do you want to hand it? And you'd talk to them and engage them. They were just dear, kind old ladies. And in the privilege I had of being their pastor for over 10 years, I think in reality they taught me far more than I ever taught them in their lives, in their joy, but in particular in the way they prayed. They understood prayer. They understood it in a way that I hadn't really seen before. And so many times I would go over to their house to say hello, see how they were doing. I remember when we moved here, Hetty was telling me, we're going to get Skype. Yes, we're going to get Hetty, you can barely hear me when I'm here, let alone over Skype. But I would go over and chat with them and spend time with them. And often I would arrive and they would sit me down, they'd make me some tea and do different things like that. And they'd say, David, we're just praying for Burundi at the moment. Would you like to join us? Yes. Where is Burundi? And in different places, as you would go over and interact with them, you realize these ladies, these two old ladies, are carrying the world in their hearts. They had a map on the wall. There was different places being chosen from the world that they are crying out to God for. They would watch the God channel so they could see what was happening over the world and then pray for it. And then every time... They would always want to talk about 
how am I? How's Emma? How's Joshua? Who they used to call Joseph. And every time you'd say, it's not Joseph. But you can pray for Joseph if you want. I think God knows. And they would just want to find out, how can I pray for you? How can I carry you in my heart? And what I quickly discovered is out of the 600-odd folk at Christchurch, it wasn't just me they were doing that for. They were doing it for seemingly everyone. They would sit in two chairs on a Sunday morning, two old ladies' chairs. We decided that we were just getting older as a congregation. We have a load of youth rocking up at Christchurch all the time, but also there was many people in their 60s and their 70s and the 80s. And the reason why we had many people who were there in their 60s, 70s and 80s is because when the church started 17 years ago, they were the people in the 40s, 50s and 60s that stood strong and helped to keep us going. Etienne and I were two of those people. They sit now in these chairs at the back of the church on Sunday morning, these old lady chairs, with a little spring-up thing where you press the button and it springs you up. It's just really good. So they sit there and every week they'd be saying, you know what? David, go get John for us. Can you get John? Oh, yeah, I'll get John for you. So you get John for you and then John. So, and then you notice John would have a little chat and then John's off to get someone else and somebody else comes back. And it's like a, an audience with Hetty and I win. Here's how the conversations are going. How can we pray for you this week? And they'd be making notes as they articulate and understand we're trying to carry this church in our hearts. We love you. We're a body, we're a family, and so we want to carry you in our hearts. They gave a a wonderful example then of being a couple who prayed at all times, with all kinds of prayers, with all perseverance, confident in the grace of God that he could do mighty things, that as people gathered and prayed, whether it be on their own or in groups, that the God of all earth could do incredible things through the humble prayers of the saints. And so they prayed at all times, all kinds of prayers for all the saints with all perseverance. Folks, would this be a church filled with Hetty and Iwins? Would we be a people who understand from their example what it is to carry people in our hearts, what it is to carry the people that we call life group, that we can be tempted to rock up once every two weeks and say, all right, no, to carry them in our hearts to have our quiet time every day with the Bible on one side and the names of our group on the left side so that we commit to carrying these people in our hearts, carrying their burdens, carrying their devotions, carrying the different things that are happening in their lives. Would this church be filled with Hetty and Irons? Prayer really is the ultimate secret weapon. When we use it, incredible things can and do happen. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we do thank you for the glories of prayer. Lord, we were once cut off from you. We could have nothing to do with you. We were your enemies. We were separated by a thick curtain. But now through the death of your son, the curtain has been torn in two. And you no longer encourage us to stay separate. You encourage us to draw up a chair beside your holiness and talk to you. Lord, would we be then a church of talkers, not primarily to one another, but primarily to you? Lord, would our hearts be filled with adoration for you and confession and thanksgiving and supplication? Lord, as we become a church of prayer warriors, would we have the privilege of seeing you do incredible and great things. 
Lord, you are kind. You are gracious. And in your sovereignty, incredibly, although it is laced with mystery, you have caused prayer to be the means through which your sovereign plan comes about. Our prayers make a divine difference. So would we be prayers at all times, all kinds of prayers with all perseverance for all the saints? And as we do that, would all glory go to you, Jesus? Amen. Amen, folks.